WLRN edition 72, broadcasting in 3, 2, 1. I was born woman, off my knees I will stand for my liberation, sisters rise again. I was born woman, off my knees I will stand for my Greetings, and welcome to the 72nd edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, April 7th, 2022. This is Jenna. I'm WLRN sound producer, and I've been a part of this collective since 2016. In these few years, I've seen sisters go from being ostracized and intimidated for speaking the truth to organizing wherever they can to speak up against misogyny and the erasure of women. On April 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, Sisters for Sisters is hosting a weekend of actions, WLRN's speaking panel, Courage Calls to Courage, and a day of workshops, all aimed at defending women's free speech, opposing female erasure, and supporting Thistle in her hometown of Madison, Wisconsin. The panel will feature the Turf Collective's Jessica Gonzalez, Lear Keith of Deep Green Resistance, Jeanette Cooper of Partners for Ethical Care, and WLRN's own Thistle Pedersen. WLRN will be live streaming the panel and Sunday's workshops via our social media channels. We are incredibly excited to be there for this historic weekend of strength and solidarity. For more information, visit sistersforsisters2022.com. That's sisters, the number four, sisters2022.com. Today's podcast focuses on the feminist mothering of daughters in today's challenging and often bewildering world. We'll hear an excerpt of an interview Emily Ann did with Jeanette Cooper, feminist mother of a daughter who she is no longer in touch with due to her daughter believing she is a boy. Jeanette is also one of the featured speakers at WLRN's in-person public panel discussion library event coming up in Madison on April 23rd. So we are thrilled to get to present this interview ahead of that talk. We'll also hear commentary from resident female separatist and desert dweller Sekhmet Shiaul who talks about what feminist mothering actually looks like. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, here's Jen Billick with her monthly gender industry report from the 11th Hour blog. Hi all, I am reporting here from the 11th Hour blog, tracking the global gender industry. Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, recently discussed our developing ability to download our memories and personalities into a robot. I certainly don't want to have anything that could potentially be harmful to humanity, Musk said, but humanoid robots are happening. The rate of advancement of AI is extremely rapid. Musk is worth $223 billion. China's Sudu Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Technology has created a system that could take care of embryos in simulated artificial wounds. Martine Rothblatt is a transsexual transhumanist lawyer with his own biopharmaceutical corporation who invented a robot of his wife. He is author of the very first gender bill to give body dissociation, emerging out of the fetishization of female biology, existence within the law. He speaks often on the techno-religion of transhumanism and its relationship to what he calls transgenderism. He is invested in genetics, nanotechnology, AI, and the advancements of reproductive technologies which separate human sexual dimorphism and women from reproduction. Rothblatt speaks often at Out Leadership, the global business arm of the LGBT. He believes we will be living in a singularity, what Mark Zuckerberg, who owns Facebook, calls a metaverse in the not-too-distant future. The singularity is outlined in a book by Rothblatt's friend and inspiration, Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil of Google is another transhumanist who founded a medical company with a penchant for AI, life extension, genetics, nanotechnology, and robotics. 
Google has funded millions of dollars to the Trevor Project, purportedly the largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention organization for LGBTQ youth, with revenues exceeding $35 million. In a recent guest post at the 11th Hour blog, Emmeline, a parent of a child taking on a special medical sex identity promoted as transgender, describes her journey through the Trevor Project, which she posed as a young adult attempting to find information about detransitioning. What she found was a lot of propaganda leading her back to drugs and surgeries being the best option for the fictitious character she created to explore the Trevor Project. Not inconsequentially, the Trevor Project is also funded by myriad farmer giants, including AbbVie, makers of puberty blocker Lupron, Gilead, Johnson & Johnson, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. We must connect the dots between the techno-medical complex, futurism, the world's most powerful men, and deconstruction of women as a sex class. It is not just our sex class or our spaces that elites are deconstructing, but actual women's biology and reproductive capacities for profit and for sating their desire to own female biology. Pharma giants like Johnson & Johnson hold conferences on the literal, physical deconstruction of women's sex anatomy for identity purposes. The surrogacy industry, where women are used and exploited in the reproductive tech sector, is exploding. Hypnosissy porn is being thrust into the porn market to cultivate the fetish of autogynophilia in teen and adult men, and medical sex identities marketed as defying the binary of sexual dimorphism are being promoted in grade school curriculums, on children's social media platforms, in universities, in Hollywood, on all mainstream media which intersect with the techno-medical complex, and in medical schools. Misogyny has hit a new level of expression in our cultures with the gender industry because it is connected to the exponential growth of disruptive technologies as they are sown to an unfettered capitalist market. If we only fight for women's rights to safe spaces and to stop the medicalization of young children, it might be all we succeed in winning, when we really need to name and abolish the root of the gender industry, which rests in the normalization of a male fetish that covets our biology and its power for itself. Thank you for listening, and please visit us at the 11th Hour blog. This has been a special report for Women's Liberation Radio News. Thank you, Jen, for always keeping a finger on the pulse of the TRA Hydra. We now turn to Elizabeth Miller's monthly Getting Organized in Activist Primer, a new monthly podcast segment that will give you ideas and tools to do your own feminist activism. For this month's segment, Elizabeth interviewed Genevieve Gluck about her Women's Voices podcast and her new online magazine, Redux. You can hear much more of Elizabeth's interview with Genevieve Gluck on WLRN's YouTube channel. Hi, Genevieve. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Elizabeth. I wanted to ask you about two of your projects. One is Women's Voices, and the other one is Redux, which is a magazine you launched recently. Could you start by talking about your Women's Voices project, what the purpose is, how you decided to do it, what you're trying to achieve with it, and how did you go about starting it and running it? What steps did you take, and what's going on with it now? So to begin with, I had started a Facebook group called the Radical Feminist Book Club. So I had uh, access to a large volume of writing and work by women. So I had thought, why not take this and try to record some audio uh, and try to get other women involved in this and read feminist texts so that this can reach a larger audience? Because as we know, radical feminist writing is uh, not well into the mainstream. So I thought that would be a good way to try to do it and kind of expanded into doing interviews with women because I didn't want to be limited to just focusing on one thing. And also with reading, you've got to worry about copyright as well. So I wanted to be sure um, not to step on anyone's toes. Yeah. So then I started interviewing women, um, just anyone that you know I was connecting with on Twitter or Facebook and thought, you know, they have an interesting story that they want to talk about or something to say. And then expanded into now these days, I'm also doing a news commentary with my friend Jen Isaacson. So we kind of look at things related to women's rights and have discussions about them. So it's got these three aspects to them of the reading, the interviews, and then also the news commentary. 
And how do you go about sort of setting up your interviews, reaching out to people to interview them? And how do you sort of gather the news that you're going to comment about? And then do you and Jen talk ahead of time about what you're going to say about the news or what's your process? Yeah, actually, I really like to prepare well in advance, (laughs) but not everyone does. You know, maybe sometimes Jen isn't that concerned about it, Um, but I really like to figure out what topics to discuss and maybe have something prepared that we can speak about um, both in advance. So if we both read the same article, for example, it makes it much easier to talk about that thing. Um, And yeah, sometimes I'll just make some notes in advance of, you know, to be sure to highlight this point, or I can bring it, it, when talking about the news, bring it back to something that happened in the past as well. So um, in general, I kind of keep track of the news anyway. So it's not uh, something that I'm going out of my way to do. Mm-hmm. And what about Redux? Tell me about your vision for that and how you got started with it, what you're trying to do with it and how you do it, the nuts and bolts of how you do it. So Redux kind of just landed in my lap by accident. It wasn't something that I'd intended to do initially, but uh, I was talking a lot with my friend Anna over Twitter And uh, we just really have a good energy. So I said, you know, why don't we do something with this? We have a kind of a good cop, bad cop vibe, I think, about us where she says I'm the good cop. I was just going to ask you which one you were. (laughs) Yeah, I don't really want to be the good cop because I think it's kind of square, but I guess I am. Anyway, so we just had this natural energy and we were working on news pieces already. So we just said, hey, you know, like, do you want to do this together? Let's work on something of our own together and then we can have total control over it and we can publish whatever we want. Yeah. Um, So we launched that in January, kind of with the goal being on the focus of, how should I say this, of um, the increasing sexual predation of men that we're seeing in society. So she had done some work researching pedophile communities, and I have done some work looking at the paraphilias involved in the gender movement. So we both already had a mutual uh, interest in exposing those things. So we got together and that's kind of the main focus of Redux now. Although hopefully in the future, we want to expand that to have more opinion pieces and more general feminist ideas. But for the moment, that's been something that's working really well for us to bring attention to, because a lot of people, when they hear about these things are just really surprised. They had no idea. And so I think bringing awareness of those issues is important. Thank you, Elizabeth and Genevieve, for that informative segment. We now turn to WLRN's World News segment with women's news from around the globe with Emily Ann Lorenzen for this Thursday, April 7th, 2022. There has been a surge in girls as young as eight years old experiencing precocious puberty worldwide. And doctors believe that the pandemic is to blame. Precocious or early puberty is when a child develops pubertal changes earlier than normal, eight for girls and nine for boys. A Delhi-based pediatrician reported that she typically sees 20 girls per year with precocious puberty, but since June 2020, she has seen more than 300 girls with the condition. Pediatricians from Italy to Turkey to the United States have noticed an increase as well. An Italian study published in January 2021 revealed that there is an association between the complex lifestyle changes related to the lockdown and more girls experiencing early puberty. It is believed that children being stuck inside with prolonged exposure to electronic devices, increased consumption of unhealthy food, increased stress, and reduced physical activity have led to the rise in these cases. The Taliban was set to open secondary schools for girls, but instead has kept them closed. Girls are able to get an education through sixth grade and in college, but secondary school has been shut down due to concerns over lack of teachers, the need to create an appropriate environment for girls to study, and deciding on uniforms. Experts say that the Taliban's excuse for keeping the schools closed is not valid, and instead reflects the deep 
divisions within Afghanistan regarding girls' education. In response, more than two dozen women and girls protested in front of the Ministry of Education in Kabul, holding signs that said, quote, Education is our fundamental right, not a political plan, unquote, before dispersing when Taliban fighters arrived at the scene. In Iran, hundreds of women working in cinema are speaking out about violence against women within the industry, calling for systems that would hold perpetrators and enablers accountable. On April 1st, more than 200 women, including well-known Iranian actresses, released a statement condemning sexual violence and harassment, which they say has become endemic in the Iranian film industry. They also denounced financial inequality and disparity in decision-making powers with their male peers. They urged entities such as the Iranian Alliance of Motion Picture Guilds to form a female-majority committee with people who are trained in dealing with sexual violence that would discreetly review harassment claims. They also proposed adding mechanisms to movie contracts to protect women and to hold perpetrators accountable through financial penalties and suspension from future work in the industry. The Prime Minister of Bangladesh has decided to eradicate legislation implemented in 1872 during British rule that allows police and lawyers to accuse rape victims of quote-unquote immoral character. Many women do not come forward because they are afraid of being publicly shamed, and the law as it is written in Bangladesh allows for her sexual history to be scrutinized if she is raped. The United Nations has raised concerns about the rising rates of rape cases in the country and has urged the nation to overhaul its criminal justice system. Since the war in Ukraine was launched by Russia on February 24th, Evidence has surfaced of rape and sexual assault perpetrated by Russian soldiers on Ukrainian civilians, which is a war crime. Hotlines and charities have been flooded with women asking for help, but due to the war, these services are unable to help them physically. As women flee Ukraine, men are taking advantage of their trauma. Internet searches for Ukrainian porn, girl, teen, or prostitute have spiked since the invasion. In Ireland, an escort site noted a 250% increase in searches on its website for Ukrainian women. In Germany, feminist Ellie Arrow, who documents what sex buyers say and do with her project The Invisible Men, reported that Ukrainian women are being targeted to enter the sex trade. In Brampton, Canada, a judge ordered a man to pay his ex-wife $150,000 in damages for a 16-year pattern of abuse, including beatings, withholding money, and verbal cruelty. This is a precedent-setting decision that offers survivors of family violence a pathway to seek fair compensation in the civil courts. The judge who made the decision, Superior Court Justice Renu Mandhain said, quote, These patterns can be cyclical and subtle, and often go beyond assault and battery to include complicated and prolonged psychological and financial abuse. Leah Thomas is a University of Pennsylvania male swimmer who competed against women in the NCAA championship, and he won the Division I 500-yard freestyle stealing first place from Emma Wayant. More than 20 people representing Save Women's Sports and Young Women for America stood outside the race in protest of Thomas competing, including Kelly J. Keene, aka Posey Parker. Thomas competing in the race has caused an uproar of people questioning what it means to have trans-identified men competing against women. In Oklahoma, Governor Kevin Stitt signed a bill dubbed the Save Women's Sports Act, which limits the competition of sports based on sex in high school and college. Also in the UK, 
The trans-identified man, Emily Bridges, cannot participate in the Women's British National Omnium Championship after the cycling's governing body ruled that he cannot compete due to him still being registered as a male cyclist. There was a backlash from within the sport with a number of female riders talking about boycotting the event if he competed. It appears that despite Thomas's win, the tide is turning when it comes to saving women's sports. That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, April 7th, 2022. I'm Emily Lorenzen. Share your news stories, announcements, and tips with us by emailing info at womensliberationradionews.com and let us know what's going on. the wall beside my head and I try to draw the line but it ends up running down the middle of me most of the time and boys get locked up in some prison girls get locked up in some house and it don't matter if it's a warden or a lover or a spouse you just can't talk to them you just can't reason you just can't leave and you just can't please I mean, I was locked being my mother's daughter, I was just eating bread and water, thinking nothing ever changes, and I was shocked. See the mistakes of each generation will just fade like a radio station. If you try, you just gotta try, you just gotta try out of range. Stupid, you don't care How else can you react When you know something's so unfair When the man of the hour Can kill half the world in war Make them slaves to a superpower And let them die poor I was locked Into being my mother's daughter I was just eating bread and water Thinking nothing ever changes And I was shocked See the mistakes of each generation Will just fade like a radio station If you try You just gotta try You just gotta try That was Ani DeFranco with her song, Out of Range. Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview Emily Ann did with Jeanette Cooper, a founding member of Partners for Ethical Care and a feminist mother herself. This is Emily Ann Lorenzen, and I'm here with Jeanette Cooper. And uh, you are a founding member of the Partners of Ethical Care? Partners for Ethical Care, yeah. Yeah. And so tell me about yourself a little bit, how you got involved with Partners um, for Ethical Care. Yeah, um, I'll go a little bit further from uh, earlier from that. Um, So I used to take my daughter to the Michigan Women's Music Festival from the time she was like two. Mm -hmm. She's 15 and a half now. So she came every summer with me. I was a craftswoman and um it was a life-changing experience for sure. If, if any women have been there really an amazing place to kind of see yourself in a bunch of different iterations and time periods in your life, kind of walking humanly in front of you, which is pretty great. Mm -hmm. And I loved having my daughter there. She, she loved the freedom, you know, she would just kind of wander around. So she kind of grew up understanding the the variety of women that exists and how, how you can embody kind of femaleness in a bunch of different ways and have different personalities and thoughts and, you know, appearances and all kinds of things. I really love that about my experience as a mom, being able to have that with her. 
I got involved with Partners for Ethical Care and we, we founded Partners for Ethical Care. This was in October, November of 2020 when we saw, uh, there's a few of us who were interested in this. We, what we saw was this particular niche, nobody was really addressing the issue of uh, children and the social and medical transition of children through the affirmation model. So we were interested in very narrowly talking about that. Um, and there were, you know, um, a handful of us interested in doing that. And we still maintain that same mission. We haven't really expanded or anything. It's a pretty narrow mission, <laughs> to be honest. And we're kind of focused on two things. We both want to bring awareness to this with the ultimate goal of once people are kind of aware, as they become aware, then we move towards supporting efforts to stop the affirmation model of care around transgender identified children. Do you have a trans identified child in your life? Like how did you get involved? Yeah. Um, sometimes in gender critical circles, actually, um, I hear people say, well, if you, you know, this parent is to blame for their child being trans identified because they didn't instill a belief of what the child could be and become. And, um, I think I'm kind of the example um, of the ways that you can do pretty much everything right that is under your control and, and still end up with a transgender identified child because there's lots of things that children have to gain socially from being transgender identified. So um, it is very complicated standing in their shoes, um, thinking about the reasons why this is beneficial to them kind of socially. I think. Um, so yeah, I do. And she's 15 and a half now. Um, my story, I haven't, it's been two and a half years since she, since she was transgender identified and, um, my story will come out probably in the next week or two from partners for ethical care. It's pretty long. It involves the family court system. Um, so it's, it's very complicated. I think I'm now reaching the end of the family court system, but um, I, I have no custody of her. I have no visitation. I have no medical or educational decision-making. She doesn't want anything medical, um, even though my parenting agreement has a clause that states that there has to be a court order for anything medical. She doesn't actually want any of that. I never thought that she did. To be honest, we had a, a bit of a um, household of kind of being fine with our bodies, similar to Fest. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't think she really ever had kind of a hatred about her body any any more extreme or even I would say under uh, under average, like below average of the regular adolescent girl. I think it's, it, you know, there's a lot of, like I said, social aspect to that. Okay. So that your story will be published on partners for ethical. Yeah, we'll do it on the, we'll do it on the blog and then we'll record it for the witness podcast because it involves a lot of different things. It involves the family court system. It involves, um, the way that a family court isn't really the right mechanism to talk about these issues. Really, they have a philosophy of the best interests of the child, um, which is pretty subjective. Right. So it's hard to really understand what would be in the best interest of the child long term. And I don't think the family court system is set up to think about children long term, especially when it's so jammed with a bunch of cases and things going on in it. So I think the family court system really is is meant to work on a very short-term basis. And I think that's how it is acting, particularly in, in my case. But what it also does in that is it creates long-term damage because I am, I'm completely alienated from my daughter. I, 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 I've seen her eight times in two and a half years. So, you know, a total of, I don't know, a handful of hours, less than 10 hours. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. It must be really difficult. Parents kind of go through stages. Well, they kind of should go through stages, right? Uh, of, of, of emotions where we start out, at least I started out, especially because my daughter went on a visit to her dad's like a regular custodial weekly kind of time and never came back. Mm. Um, so it wasn't, and then she came out as trans. 
Uh, so it's a bit of a different story where I really felt like I got hit on the back of the head with, with a two by four. Um, I was, I would say quite disoriented. I've actually had a concussion before. And I would say that they were nearly the same physical feeling of that. So there is like this disorientation and then it moves toward kind of like a, how did this happen? And, and part of that is looking at yourself. How did I allow this to happen um, to my child? Why is she kind of turning into this different person or why is she, why is she kind of problem solving in this way? Um, and, and then I, you know, then I look at the child and how can you do this to me? <laughs> and then, and then you remember like she, your child isn't doing anything to you. Mm-hmm. They're not, um, they're trying to survive in a very complex social system and, and they're just trying to survive in their life. So then it's easier to have a lot more compassion for your child. And then you kind of look around the spheres of the child. Okay. What's the social environment of the child? What's this, the school or the, all the things around the child. And then once you get, well, how did the school get those materials or, or how did that club, you know, have these mixed age people in it? Like, I didn't know that or whatever it is. Um, things that you, you thought were progressive and awesome turn into be like, wait, I didn't, I didn't think that's what you were talking about. So then, you know, you come to this kind of like, wow, there's a giant system that's kind of producing, you know, content um, and making schools into rather than a reproducing what's happening in society, they're producing something that they want to happen in society, which is a very liberal and progressive idea. Um, But some things you really don't want produced on mass scale. Yeah, I think I, I learned quite a bit. And now it's you have some grounding as a parent after that whole process of introspection and reflection on yourself. What are the things? Why am I feeling this way? Um, what kind of things are from my own childhood that make me feel this way? You know, because it's not all all of our feelings are not based upon the thing that's right in front of us. Much of them are based on our childhood. So a lot of that self-reflection as a parent is really, really helpful. So I feel like I've gained a lot through this process and that's kind of how we want, you know, parents to grow so that then they can get to the place that they're able to really take on activism, like partners for ethical care or anything else that they feel is um, part of kind of taking down the gender industry. But we want them to do it not as a distraction from the things, their personal kind of stuff that they probably need to work through, whether that's from childhood or, um, or a relationship or something else. Um, but they come to activism because they've gone through kind of a healing process in their own selves. Yeah. That sounds like a really healthy approach to um, helping parents and getting them involved. Yeah. I mean, there's people can grow and it's pretty great. I mean, we're like human beings are never done. Like we're always in a state of becoming and that's super exciting. I, I think, I mean, it's like living multiple lives. I feel like a cat. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. And so you're going to be speaking at the Courage Calls to Courage event in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, So why do you think Madison and Wisconsin or the Midwest in general is a great place to have these conversations? Well, I I think um, what's interesting about the Midwest is they don't like to create a lot of waves, um, even though we have obviously the Great Lakes, which I don't want to (laughs) say. That's major. It's major. But um, they don't like controversy that much, I think, in the Midwest. Um, but it is a place that you can have good discussions with people. I think that the Midwest is kind of known for being nice, mm-hmm. um, like really nice and hardworking. And I feel like that kind of embodies the things that we need to be doing right now is having real conversations as human beings, um, kind of human beings as in creatures in the universe and living, breathing things. And the Midwest is kind of known for its farming culture. So I like the idea of doing it in the Midwest. I think we just did, um, and we're still in the process of kind of um, trying to get a house bill 454 in Ohio, the save adolescents from experimentation act passed. Um, 
it would stop kind of the social transition at school and the medical transition happening in children's hospitals in Ohio. Um, and in the Midwest is, is a great spot for that. People, people like to kind of have calm conversations. It's not a place for extremeness. Um, so I think it's a good place to, to sit down and talk. Mm-hmm. Well, and what do you think of the extremity in Madison where it's kind of a TRA town? Do you think that has to do with, I mean, I don't really know much about Madison, Wisconsin, so maybe you could shed some light on maybe why that area would become captured. Yeah, I think that that can be true. Um, What we have to remember, though, is that the vast majority of people agree with us. Mm -hmm. They agree. They, They know what biological sex is. So there is some times, obviously, at which they are like insecurity brings about a defensiveness that becomes yelling and shouting. Right. Um, people who are deeply secure generally aren't yelling at people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and they're generally not fighting all the time. So um, I think that it de- Madison op- offers an opportunity for the, the quiet to be spoken because we know that people agree. We know that people understand that, you know, children are important and that women are important and it opens up a space to really um, have somebody else say something that you think too, and walk up to them afterward, be like, you know, I've been scared to say this, (laughs) but I agree with what you're saying. And those connections that people make in person it's amazing. Like coming together as human beings and talking to each other and seeing people's faces. So when you talk at the library, you already kind of mentioned what you're going to talk about, but are you going to be focusing on like parent activism or? I have this blend that I want, I think is necessary to talk about, which is that basis in radical feminism and sisterhood. And that idea that every woman is my sister and every girl is my little sister, that I'm not a mother unless I'm female. So that, that is the thread that is binding all of us in the whole thing. So I think me as a parent is somewhat in some way secondary to the way that I am a woman, but so there's a responsibility for me to all, all women and all little sisters out there, including, you know, my own girl, but that our responsibility as mothers is, is quite gigantic and, I think there are ways that we can do good things for the world as moms. So I want to talk about um, kind of having compassion for all the mothers, not, not just the ones who we feel like we agree with, mm-hmm. who are doing the things that we're like, yeah, that's good that you're doing what I think is good. <laughs> um, but have compassion for the women who are doing things that we kind of wonder, like, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Like what, what, what would make you do that? What would make you, you know, socially or medically transition your child? Like, I don't understand that really curiosity is what I'm hoping to inspire from, from women is a curiosity about what would make someone do that? What is it about kind of the, the big patriarchal structure that, that mothers are living in that would make them do that? There must be something. And so it really calls upon us to be curious about that and compassionate for them so that we can then have conversations. And, you know, it sounds like you've been involved in the women's movement for quite some time. So where do you feel like the women's movement is at right now? And what do you think is needed moving forward? You know, it's hard because I feel like really young. I'm only 44 and I feel like a really young person to be able to answer that question because I don't have the the long view. Uh, this past summer when I was at uh, Big Mouth Girl on the land, uh, I was just talking to older women in general about what they've seen and they can see a longer view. And in some ways, I don't feel like I can see that. But what I what I want to see is kind of where I thought we were heading actually <laughs> toward, toward some sort of social environment where girls could be strong and they wouldn't, they were just girls. <laughs> There's wishes that I have for girls in the world to just be. 
I don't know how else to say that. Right. Yeah. Just be just, just to be without. Um, and that's an impossible task because we live in a social, you know, everybody lives in like a social environment where they both change the environment and are changed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hope that there's just a little bit more space for them to, to change it in good ways and be changed by it in good ways. And so the talk courage calls to courage at the library. Um, it's preceded by sisters for sisters, which is kind of like, um, a weekend event Yeah, speakers and, you know, workshops and, um, sisterhood. Um, Would you also be at the sisters for sisters event? Yes. So yeah, I'm excited. I mean, and that's the thing. It's the informal time that we all talk to each other and we meet new people and somebody says, I mean, one of the best things, um, that I experience kind of every time I go somewhere is I meet somebody who says I was scared to come here because I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then you say, it's so good. It's you know, like, it's wow. That's amazing. I mean, who does that? How brave, like truly brave to like go to a space where you're just thinking, you know, I, I think I might have like, I think kind of what they think and I want to hear what they're saying and I want to meet them. Um, and then you find out that everybody you're talking to is a human being and, and that's so awesome. Uh, so it's those informal things that I'm really excited about. It's really freeing. It, it, it's a feeling that kind of reminds me um, of when, when I first went to fest or as the years kind of went by and I could say, oh my gosh, I know why I feel so good here. It, it's like being weightless. So how do you recommend women who are watching this or listening to this um, support Sisters for Sisters and Courage Calls to Courage? Okay, well, they should figure out how they want to do their weekend um, <laughs> because there's like a, a lot of things to like choose from. But I think they should probably get in, like send an email, make sure that they kind of get into the group to be able to ride share and all that stuff. I think that's like road tripping is half of it. That's the fun. Um, And then organize with other women. I mean, I think that sometimes people think of the, any event as being outside of their price range, but to be honest, we all, this is the sharing culture, right? This is the culture of sisterhood where we share what we have And I always tell people, I can't cook anything. So please do not depend on me for your sustenance. (laughs) Um, I can provide something else, but not food. (laughs) Um, And and we can all provide different stuff. Uh, So I think if if people are like, oh, that sounds interesting, but I'm not sure just stop it. That sounds interesting and say, I'm going to figure this out because other people will help you figure it out. Other women are going to help you. So you don't have to do it all yourself. You'll ask a question, people respond and you'll figure it out and it'll be totally worth it. So I think whatever time that people can spend doing that and spending together in sisterhood, I think that's kind of life changing. It really kind of fills up your cup so that you can go back into the world. And is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, one for partners for ethical care, I'm, I'm running what's called the ladies letter writing league. And so what we do is we're trying to connect people, uh, people who have stories, things that have happened that they find are wrong. They shouldn't be happening, whether that's in a school in a doctor's office, a therapist's office, something, something that they feel is unethical or illegal um, violate some sort of, you know, code or something, um, to, to be able to write formal complaints, um, to universities, um, to schools, to all kinds of doctor. We just finished one for a doctor's, a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to bridge that gap so that we can get those formal complaints to licensing boards, um, and, and other boards, ethics boards, uh, so that people can be reported for the things that they're doing that are unethical. Well, that sounds really that documentation is super important because we have legislators in states who will say this isn't happening. Right. And and we can tell stories all day long. Very, very important to tell our stories. But formal documentation is a whole nother piece that has to be done. And it it requires 
people to help each other and work in collaboration. That's something that we learn as radical feminists to work in collaboration in order to gain, you know, a serious power. So I'm trying to use that model um, of collaboration within the Ladies Letter Writing League. Great. Yeah. The second thing, just briefly, I wanted to mention is I, um, I have a Facebook page and, and website called Dear Daughter Love Mom. And it's really letters to our daughters and our sons um, from this character, mom, um, which is maybe me sometimes, but isn't always me. Um, and it's really letters um, kind of expanding and, and exploring the possibilities of womanhood and manhood and what that can be. And that was really a processing exercise for me to think about how I envision uh, a world for children. And what I want for them. And that speaks to your question that you asked me earlier about where do I see the women's movement going? And part of it is where do I see mothers in that? So Dear Daughter Love Mom really encompasses that. Ani DeFranco with her song, As Is. You are listening to WLRN. mother is supposed to be her primary protector, and often she is. A mother can also be one of her daughter's first abusers, and almost always she is the primary teacher and enforcer of heteropatriarchal consciousness in her underage daughter's life. It's important for us to acknowledge this fact as feminists. Glorifying mothers and pretending they're blameless saints dismisses the pain and suffering of their daughters, while enabling mothers to continue their sexist, toxic, and destructive behavior. Most mothers are not feminists, and never will be. That's a fact. This creates consequences both in the personal lives of their daughters and in the bigger social picture. A male-identified misogynistic mother will raise a male-identified misogynistic daughter, or else become her feminist daughter's enemy and obstacle. No matter what, a girl's mother is an example to her, either of what to be or what not to be. 
Unfortunately, most of us were raised by women who showed us the complete opposite of feminist living and consciousness, never mind feminist mothering. We were raised by mothers who spent their entire lives choosing bad men as boyfriends and husbands. Mothers who were self-hating women with low self-esteem. Mothers obsessed with their looks and ours, with their weight and ours. Heterosexual mothers who were openly and aggressively lesbian hating toward us, their lesbian daughters. Mothers who taught us to obey het male rules, who taught us to settle or shrink ourselves or hide who we really are. Mothers who made us feel responsible for them and like we owed them something. Mothers who allowed males to hurt us and get away with it. Mothers who demanded their idea of perfection from us in exchange for their validation and affection. Mothers who trained us to be ashamed of our bodies and our emotions and our desires or who trained us to shape these things in service of male pleasure. I could go on, but you get the picture. A majority of us were raised by deeply flawed mothers who affected us for the worse. If you're one of those women and you want to raise a girl or you're already doing it, it's especially important for you to identify what feminist mothering is and decide to practice it rather than defaulting to the kind of unfeminist or patriarchal mothering you experienced as a girl. Whether you choose to become a mother or not, it's also important for you to make peace with the mothering you received as a girl, if it in any way hurt you or did not serve you. What does feminist mothering look like? I can't tell you from observation. I've never encountered a feminist mother of a girl let alone a woman raised by a feminist. I can only answer the question by imagining how I would raise a girl if I wasn't a child-free woman. A feminist mother does take every possible step to guard her daughter from male sexual predation and physical abuse, which requires minimizing her daughter's exposure to unsupervised interaction with males. Emphasize the importance of education, career, and financial solvency to her daughter. Call out patriarchal, sexist, anti-woman, pro-male thinking her daughter expresses and explain why and how that thinking is a problem. Nurture independence and self-reliance in her daughter. Teach her daughter critical thinking skills. Acknowledge and take responsibility for her own mistakes and any harm she causes her daughter, whether intentional or unintentional. Prioritize her daughter's well-being over heterosexual relationships with men and relationships with pro-male anti-woman friends and family members. Support her daughter's interests, including and especially in hobbies, academic subjects, and career paths that are male-dominated. Allow her daughter to develop her individuality and sense of self. Teach her daughter that she has a right to personal boundaries, including in the mother-daughter relationship. Respect her daughter as an individual human being who belongs only to herself. Tell her daughter the truth about males and female oppression. A feminist mother does not Attempt to groom or herd her daughter into heterosexuality. Pressure her daughter to reproduce or otherwise raise children. Force, teach, or allow femininity practices, including body hair removal, makeup wearing, fake nails, fake eyelashes, sexually provocative clothing, long hair, and cosmetic surgery. Shame, bully, or seek to control her daughter on the subject of body weight. This includes pushing diet pills, shapewear, weight loss programs, etc. Brainwash her daughter into a patriarchal organized religion. Encourage her daughter to see other girls as competition for heterosexual male attention. Pass lesbian hating onto her daughter. Allow her daughter to absorb and embody racism and classism unchallenged. 
allow her daughter to participate or cooperate in misogynistic cultural norms just to fit in with her peers and be normal. These are incomplete lists, but if you fully understand the scope of radical feminism, which is the only true feminism, then it should be easy for you to figure out what a feminist mother would and would not do. What should be apparent to you after hearing my lists is that only a woman who is living a feminist life can be a feminist mother. You can't teach your daughter not to perform femininity if you perform it yourself. You can't teach your daughter to be wary of males if you fill your personal life with them. You have to model female-identified feminist living if you want your daughter to pick it up. It also bears mentioning that feminist mothering, while very difficult, also leads to the healthiest mother-daughter relationship possible. So much of what poisons mother-daughter relationships can be traced back to the vestiges and values of heteropatriarchy. If you can commit yourself to living a feminist life as a woman, and that means undoing, unlearning, and healing all the male supremacist crap you internalized growing up, then you have a chance at raising a feminist daughter as a feminist mother, and that commitment will force you to deal with all the issues that would, unaddressed, lead you to mother in a harmful, toxic, or male-identified way. I may not have all the answers, and I can't speak as a mother because I'm not one. But I can speak as a daughter. I know what I needed from my mother as a girl that I didn't get, and I can recognize all the ways in which her male identification and cooperation with the heteropatriarchy harmed me and our relationship. It is with that awareness that I say to you, Step one of feminist mothering is actually being a feminist woman, not a woman who picks and chooses which tenets of feminism suit her and discarding the rest. Step two, raising your daughter to be the kind of woman that heterosexual men despise. Thanks for listening to WLRN's 72nd edition podcast on feminist child rearing. WLRN would like to thank our guest this month for sharing her view on this topic. Thank you so much, Jeanette Cooper, for speaking with us. I can't wait to hear your speech live from the downtown Madison Public Library on April 22nd. Solidarity, sister. Until next time, this is Thistle signing off on another WLRN podcast. If you like what you are hearing and would like to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the Donate button. Check out our merch tab to get a nice gift in exchange for your donation. And if you are interested in joining our team, we are always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is April No, signing off for now. And I am Jenna. Thanks for tuning in. Next month, we will focus our program on a review and digest of events happening in Madison over Earth Day weekend, April 22nd through the 24th. For more information about WLRN's live stream or Sisters for Sisters events, see the description posted with this podcast for links. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of every month, so look for it on Thursday, May 5th. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when we release new content, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN WordPress site. Stay strong in the struggle, and thanks for listening. This is Emily Ann, signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. You can find us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spinster, Overit, and SoundCloud, in addition to our WordPress site. Thanks for listening. This is Sekhmet Shiaul. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thanks for your support. We would love to hear from you, so please share, like, and comment widely. But how would-
dope for the patriarchal kiss. How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that, where is home? Tell me, where is my home? Cause gender hurts.